time for this week's Zonal Marking podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, This podcast is one in which myself, Ali Maxwell, and The Athletic's football tactics writer, Michael Cox, are joined by a different guest each week to zoom in on a club, a manager, a player, a tactical trend, basically whatever we fancy. Uh, And Michael, what's on the agenda today? Well, I feel like with the Premier League nearing its return, people need almost an update on what's happened so far this season. And I think Bournemouth are one of the more interesting sides in... uh, in the Premier League this campaign, they're a slightly different style from the way they've played in, in the past few seasons and maybe not quite the type of side that people think they are. So we're joined by our uh, Bournemouth correspondent, Peter Rutzler, who's going to talk us through their campaign. Hashtag welcome, Peter. Uh, excited for you to be making your debut on the Zonal Marking podcast. Of course, throughout lockdown, uh, you've been covering the club, as have all the club-specific writers. You've got people like Michael uh, who have a sort of longer leash, I suppose, in terms of what they can go after in terms of writing and stories. And Coxie's been doing all sorts of different stuff on the Athletic site at the moment. Uh, to any listeners who haven't subscribed to The Athletic, please do give it a go. You'll get a 30-day free trial uh, if you head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking and sign up today. You can check out all of Peter's Bournemouth writing, uh, what Michael is coming up with and so much more as well. Um, let's get our teeth into the Cherries, probably my favourite team nickname in the uh, <laughs> in the Premier League. You wouldn't want to get your teeth stuck into the Toffees, which we did with Paddy Boyland uh, a couple of months back. Uh, and Peter, it's your first campaign down on the South Coast covering Bournemouth. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of context in the question here to listeners who maybe haven't kept a close eye on this club. It's a club that rose from League Two to the Premier League in six years, three promotions there in six seasons. And now after four seasons in the Premier League, a popular team for the neutrals, you know, plenty of goals guaranteed, a highly rated manager with an impressive record. But at the same time, with the Premier League resuming in a few weeks, we actually find Bournemouth in a somewhat precarious position uh, in the relegation zone with Norwich at the bottom, six points below them. Aston Villa, two points behind with a game in hand and Bournemouth in 18th place, level on points with Watford and West Ham with an inferior goal difference. And according to the website, 538, a 51% chance of relegation. So upon the league's return, things really are in the balance. Were you expecting such a difficult campaign on the pitch for the club when you travelled down in August to start covering Bournemouth? Uh-huh. Um, no, I'd be lying if I, if I said I was. Absolutely not. I think one of the things about Bournemouth since they've come into the Premier League, you know, they've had this young squad, this young manager, and they seem to be progressing year on year and they never really seemed to be caught in the relegation fight they were always close they were never actually that far away and obviously the fine margins of the Premier League mean you're only a a bad run a a few events away from from going in the opposite direction than probably in which you plan but for me you know coming down looking at the squad especially you're thinking they're an upwardly mobile team but this year it it hasn't happened and you know it's, it's injuries have been so so important to that but yeah, in terms of my expectations, no, it's um, it's been a, it's been a surprise. But uh, yeah, once you start digging under the bonnet, there are a few things that you know sort of stand out and, and patterns come to come to light. That's exactly what we will be doing over the course of the podcast. Um, we've got to mention Eddie Howe as early as possible, really, because it's it's a struggle to think of a person more closely tied to the modern history of any professional English football club than Howe. Uh, how revered is he 
at the club. You know, you hadn't covered Bournemouth prior to this season. You've now been very much ingrained in all things Bournemouth. Uh, what did you find when you went down and started to learn about his relationship with the club and the people within it? He is he is the club, really. I mean, you've got Clough and Forrest, Ferguson at United and his tie to Bournemouth, obviously completely different scale of club, but it's very similar. You know, it's it's he is everything to them. I mean, we you go back, I think this year we wrote a piece on, on Eddie Share where the supporters crowdfunded essentially to, to buy him back from Portsmouth as a player. You know, he, he left Bournemouth, came through the academy. I think he joined the, the academy when he was about 10 years old, came through the, the youth ranks, made it to the first team, played for England under-21s, went to Portsmouth, had a terrible time with injury, and then the fans came back on loan and they, they clubbed together and, and raised money to, to sign him back. Um, so that bond really does have such longevity. Um, and his injuries ended his playing career and obviously became a coach. And his story is, you know, one with Bournemouth. You know, he, he kept them in the division, as you mentioned at the start, in, in League Two. They started that season on minus 17 points and somehow survived. They then got promoted the following year and he's taken them through the divisions to the Premier League. So when we're talking about a bond between a manager and a club, he's, um, you know, it's it's hand in glove. They are, you know, one and, almost one and the same, really. Absolutely. It's, it's always worth remembering that he's only 42 years old as well, still very young in managerial terms, despite the fact that he's been in charge uh, with a brief stint at Burnley uh, in 2011-2012 since 2008. He's only two years older than Artur Boric, uh, the, uh, the, the, the goalkeeper, the backup goalkeeper who's 40. Michael... Under Howe, certainly in the Premier League, uh, Bournemouth have had a reputation for playing attractive, possession-based football. Uh, is that backed up by the stats? This season, I mean, certainly not. I mean, I, I think of Bournemouth in their time in the Premier League as generally being a very attractive side, some really good nippy players. I, I've always liked Ryan, Ryan Fraser in particular. I think when they score good goals, they're often kind of passing combinations and very attractive goals. So, yeah, it's maybe surprising, but when you look at the basic statistics, I mean, from this season, uh, their possession is 46%, their pass completion rate is 76%. They're both 15th in the league. Very similar figures to Crystal Palace, who I think, you know, people probably think of them as the archetypal counter-attacking side, but actually, you know, Bournemouth are recording similar figures to them. Only 10.2 shots per game. Again, only Crystal Palace have attempted fewer in the league this season. In terms of dribbles, only Burnley have attempted fewer, and, and that's no surprise. You know, we've talked about Burnley before, and obviously they play, a, would say, a very different style of football to almost everyone in the league, basically looking to bypass midfield. And aside from uh, the left winger, McNeil, don't really dribble at all. Maybe the surprising thing is, is what Bournemouth excel at. They've got the most set-piece goals in the league this season with 13, which is maybe even more of a surprise considering they don't score that many overall. And also the statistics without possession. I mean... I would always take these figures as more looking at style rather than quality. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's good or bad to have good... Sorry, I'll start that again. I wouldn't necessarily say it's good or bad to have high or low numbers in this regard. But Bournemouth have uh, made the fewest tackles in the league, the second fewest fouls, but the most interceptions, which I think probably indicates the fact that they basically are quite passive without the ball. I think they stand off and, and really wait for the opposition to come onto them rather than you know, really pressing high up the pitch to win the, to win possession quickly. So, yeah, I, I think they're not quite the side a lot of people would expect. As someone who's going to all of the games and, and covering the side closely in person 
Peter. How much does that stack up with with what you're seeing? And um, put aside any um, predispositions that you had about what sort of football they would have played based on their first four seasons in the Premier League. How would you describe their game in possession and out of possession uh, this season? No, I think I think Michael's you know pretty much nailed it in terms of statistics, and and that's that is really reflected, and the fact that they do play by being that passive without the ball. Um, it's reflected in some of the results they've had, you know, that they went to Chelsea and won. They beat Manchester United. They tend to do quite well against sides who come on to them. So even even when it comes to middle ta- mid-table sides who are more proactive, take your Everton's or, or, or a Southampton, for example, they're much better at, at springing on those sides. And that's sort of borne out throughout the season. They do prefer to play on the counter-attack. They do like to invite sides. I think uh, I did a piece earlier in the season where we looked at you know, the extent to which they, they press high up the field and they're among the lowest for high turnovers, which is a pattern that's actually sort of changed over the last two seasons with the arrivals of David Brooks in particular, very much a counter-attacking player. He's very good going backwards as well as going forwards. The likes of Jefferson Lerma trying to win ball back in central areas, springing counter-attacks. And then the likes of Fraser, Wilson, they've got speed, pace, Joshua King, which enables them to hurt teams. And then the flip side, of course, is that when you have a team like that, when the other team says, right, you've got to come on to us, they've been found wanting at times. And, and that's been a real issue, especially against some of the sides around them. I mean, their worst run of form was in around December, January time, where they're playing Brighton, they played Brighton twice, uh, Norwich, Watford, lost to Watford at home 3-0. They lost to Norwich 1-0, lost away at Brighton. They lost 4-0 at West Ham. And these are the sides they needed to pick up points against, but they couldn't score, let alone be proactive and score goals. So... Without a doubt, having gone to the games, you come in with this sort of impression, which is you know the widely held view that Eddie Howe sides play very attractive, possession-based football. And the reality, especially over the last couple of seasons, is that that's not entirely the case. And I think it's over the last couple of seasons they've tried to move away from that. Because, I mean, Bournemouth sides of old would just aim to outscore their opponents in whatever well, sense. Yeah, it's it. a good time for me to jump in here because in two of the last seasons before this campaign... They had the highest combined goals in the whole of the Premier Division. That That's not just goals scored, but goals conceded as well. It, it felt like a given that when Bournemouth played, you expected them to create more than your average, let's say, mid-table side or bottom half side, but that they have been consistently leaky, shall we say, since they joined the Premier League uh, five or so years ago. From listening to how in press conferences this season, do you get the sense that that's something that he has tried to change by which I mean they appear to be slightly tighter defensively this season but they also clearly have lost a lot in an attacking sense in in the way that they're able to create and score goals and actually the result has been finding it harder to win games and a relegation battle the likes of which they, they hadn't actually seen previously do you get a sense that this was something that Howe was trying to do or something that that has been beyond his control? It's, it's an interesting thing, actually, because as we got into December and the run of form started to deteriorate, you know, the question started being asked about, you know, where are the attacking sides that we're used to with Bournemouth? And Eddie Howe himself admitted that, you know, that they've lost their way a little bit. They'd lost their identity, which was, you know, quite a striking thing to say. But when you actually looked at the way the team had gone, it's not actually that out of kilter, especially... So if we take October, Bournemouth didn't score a goal in October. And there were two sides to it. There was a one side where, for a long time, Bournemouth had been criticised for being so defensively vulnerable. They always seemed to concede goals. They always had to score a multiple amount of goals. 
and they're great to watch, but that naturally meant that they weren't always getting the results they perhaps deserved in games. And in October, they didn't score a goal, which was fine because they didn't concede many either. They drew 0-0 with Watford and they drew 0-0 with Norwich and it looked like the team had become solid. Then after that game, they, they hosted Manchester United uh, under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and they were superb both at the back and going forward. You know, they were very good on the break. It was a game that really suited them as United came on to them. Uh, and they won 1-0 through a Joshua King goal. And I remember asking Eddie Howe after the game, I said, do you feel like this is, you know, we've spoken about being attacking performances and not quite having that defensive solidity. Was this the closest you've seen to a, a complete performance? And he said, it's not quite, there's always things to improve on, as he always says, but it did feel like it had all the elements to it. When in reality, that result, as it transpired, was more of a, a red herring of the fact the side had gone m- almost too much the other way, where the team couldn't quite find that attacking now. So they, they lost so much creativity, which is you know down to a couple of things. One being injuries, which have just devastated the team this season. Another being, well, in particular, the lost David Brooks. And then the other being um, Ryan Fraser's decline in form, who just hasn't been the same player as he was last year. We're going to get stuck into a, a few of the individual uh, players and the, the different aspects of this team. Michael, in a tactical sense, what would you say is the, the story of Bournemouth's season for you? Yeah, I mean, Hal's kind of played around with it. He's, he's tried a few different formations, I think, during that period, um, October, November, generally playing a a 4-4-2 system, which I think tended to work well for them last season when, um, as Peter mentions, I mean, when Fraser and um, and Brooks are in the side, it wasn't really a 4-4-2. You know, those two were drifting inside. I just think Bournemouth did that in a very kind of dynamic way. The passing combinations between midfield and attack were really good. I think with their drop-off in form or, or with Brooks' injury, of course, he's missed the entire campaign until now. I just don't think Bournemouth were playing it in the same way. I think it became quite a flat and predictable system. I think Lerma and um, and Billing in midfield are they have some qualities, and I think Billing is is actually at times very good with his passing. But I didn't think they progressed the ball very well into dangerous positions. And I think as a as a general rule, they've they've often looked better with the four three three. I mean, obviously they have an extra midfielder in there, which I just think helps them to control games a bit more. I remember that one 0 win away at Chelsea, which was completely unexpected because the Bournemouth had so many injuries and. Maybe that formation was almost forced upon Howard because, um, you know, he was just trying to put out 11 players in a shape that vaguely made sense. But obviously they won that game. And the 2-1 against Villa as well, I think the, the two goals were from set pieces. But it just felt like they got a grip more in, in the central midfield zone. OK, against the Villa side that are not particularly solid at the back. But, you know, Villa got a lot of quality in midfield. And yeah, obviously Peter will know more than me having seen some of the maybe more unfashionable games that, that I won't have seen. But... I just think when they have an extra player in the centre of the pitch, they've often looked a little bit more like they can get a grip of, of matches and control them both with and without the ball. That's been the, the main talking point, really, for the supporters, especially throughout the season associated with Bournemouth, is that three-man midfield. I think very early in the campaign, the question was, are Billing and Lerma capable of progressing the ball up the field in a way that could you know, really bring the best out of their, their forward players? And I think the, the game that stands out in my mind was Brighton away where uh, Graham Potter set up with a free in midfield where Aaron Moy was just sort of loose in front of the, the Bournemouth back four and no one could get close to him. Um, injuries by this point had ravaged the team and the team were without Jefferson Lerma who had a, a slight hamstring problem and that kept him on the bench. But, you know, you were watching on from the sidelines and thinking they're just getting overrun and overrun. And the thing for, for Eddie Howe is that the four four two has has worked for him throughout his, his time at Bournemouth. I mean, when he first took over way back in in the league two days, you know, he would have the 4-4-2, uh, 
Um, important to have bombing on fullbacks, two wingers who would cut inside and offer a goal threat, and then a smaller, quicker, um, more of an advanced forward alongside a bigger striker. And that sort of tallied the whole way through. I mean, back then it was Brett Pittman and, and Steve Fletcher. That became, um, by the championship years, that was that was Callum Wilson and either Brett Pittman or, or Jan Kermigan, who played such an important role. And in the Premier League, it's 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 been effective, but against sides who are technically better and do seem to outnumber that midfield area that it's sort of become unstuck. And by the time we got to that, the Aston Villa game that, that Michael mentioned, when he did deploy the three, it made such an impact. It was such a visible impact and, and not just in how they played. I mean, they still played a very similar way, pressing to win the ball back and breaking on teams, but they just had the numbers to to cope with with sides who we're able to play through them with ease, really, and leave their back four exposed. Kind of brings us on nicely to a really interesting player uh, in Lewis Cook. Now, central midfield player uh, with a lovely range of passing. And let's not forget also an England international uh, from a few years ago, but has had a really tough time through injuries. I'm interested to know how his return to football has gone since he returned from injury not long before Christmas. Has he been able to impose himself on games and and? play that role dictating the tempo? Because to be honest, hearing you talk about Billing and Lerma and the difference between having that third man in midfield, it feels to me like a, a really well-balanced trio. Lerma as the, the, the whippersnapper, the ball winner, if you will, Billing more of a box-to-box role and Cook dictating the tempo in my head. <laughs> and this is some sort of Bournemouth utopia that works quite well. Has, has there been flashes that that could work on the field as well? Uh, you're not alone in that view. I think most most supporters really sort of wanted that that trio to to come to pass in a, in a sense. But I think for Lewis Cook, that he's come back from a, a very serious knee injury, which he picked up at, at Huddersfield last year and against Huddersfield last year. Um, and his return, it's one of those injuries that takes time. You need to have more match minutes to build up that that strength in your, in your knee again, and and for different players it takes a different amount of time. And for Cook, we haven't quite seen the same the same player that 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 player who can really be effective both as a, as a Harrier as someone who can press, but also going forward. And I think part of that, the issue that has long been felt, is that he's not quite positionally as disciplined, which would naturally make you think that when you play a three and you've got Lerma behind you or Billing or, or Dan Gosling next to you, that you've got that sort of insurance, but because we've had that 4-4-2 for such a long period, he hasn't really been given that opportunity. I mean, there were a couple of games where he played on the right wing, like against Burnley, he played a half on the right wing against Chelsea in that win at Stamford Bridge as well. He was superb on, on, on the right-hand side. So he's been sort of moved all over the place um, without really being able to settle and get a long concerted period of minutes. And it was actually just before the break where Bournemouth seemed to have found the, their rhythm again. They looked a threat on the break. They got really impressive draw against Chelsea and then played very well at Liverpool and a couple of mistakes sort of undid them for, for the 2-1 defeat. Cook actually did extremely well in that three and it looked for the first time like it was settled. So it's taken the length of the season to, to really get him back in the team and really get him playing to the standard we know he is. But I think that's just been a question of time since his injury. Well, maybe that'll be something that we see to a greater extent and to a more successful extent uh, when the Premier League returns. Uh, Michael, Callum Wilson's got eight goals in 26 games. Uh, There aren't too many goals being scored from midfield, it's fair to say, which means uh, goals from wide areas, or at least contributions from wide areas, uh, are are fairly crucial. Uh, How do you analyse Bournemouth's depth 
and quality in, in wide areas. Yeah, I think the real problem has been Ryan Fraser. I mean, last season, him and Callum Wilson were just sensational as a partnership. I remember in the first few games of the season, um, maybe Peter was away or just before he'd started for the Athletic. I was covering one of their games away at Villa, I think, and was looking through the statistics. And uh, the thing that jumped out was that Fraser and Wilson's combination play last season, I think, brought 13 goals, which is the most combined assists and goals for two players um, in Premier League history, I, th- I think if you include the the forty two game campaign, so they work so well together, and I think that Fraser's, you know, uh, loss of form, lack of form, maybe related to the fact he's he's probably going to be leaving this summer, has really affected Bournemouth. I think he's the kind of player who, you know, he has a multiplying effect on on those around him, and I think that uh, Wilson and and King and pretty much the whole side really has suffered from him not being on his game. Obviously, Brooks being out for the entire campaign has very much not helped because I think he could have played a a similar role. Uh, The others, I just think there hasn't been quite the consistency there. I think Harry Wilson's a a brilliant young talent. His free kicks are exceptional. I think he's possibly the best free kick taker in the league. Oh, big call. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, when you look at the, the variety of his free kicks, in fact, Peter's done a really good article on this, like really breaking down his technique. I just think his ability to, to move the ball, um, he can go from close range, he can go from long range. I think he's a really, really talented set-piece taker. I think he's tended to be in and out of matches and open play. Um, the one I'm interested in that maybe Peter can explain a bit more about is is Dan Juma, who, whenever I've seen him, just looks really lively and, and seems to have quite a cool head when he gets into dangerous positions in and around the box. But yeah, hasn't always started, so I'm not sure whether there's a, a reason for that. Yeah, no, with, with Dan Juma, I think the the problem is it's been injuries again. I mean, you pick a Bournemouth player and the natural answer will probably be injury at the moment. But Dan Juma had a foot injury at the, the start of the season and then he came in and had a few lively cameos and then picked up another foot injury before the game at Chelsea, which has kept him out for most of the season. But but as, as you say, Michael, he's one of those players who looks really, really lively. He looks like he can offer something different. And we did a piece on him uh, looking at his background at NEC Nijmegen where he actually trained under Liverpool assistant coach Pep, Pep Linders and then went on to Club Bruges and, and jumped into the, the limelight with a superb goal away at Atletico Madrid where he picked up the ball on the left-hand side, cut inside and, and curled it bottom corner from, from 25 yards out. And he has that ability to be a match winner. It's the same thing that's come back through. And when you don't have those players, you don't have that alternative option when you've got someone like Fraser who hasn't been firing at the same level and you, you need someone to provide that competition and that stimulus. Um, that's been a big miss. I think also, just on Fraser, what's so interesting is his form has not been the same level as, as last year. And uh, we we did a piece on him today where we talked about how his contract situation has affected him. He himself came out and said, you know, I... I haven't been playing for the team and that obviously did not go down very well with the fan base, but he's still Bournemouth's most creative player by a decent margin. Um, And it becomes very interesting, obviously, when you look at the the run-in and he has so much uncertainty about his future when his contract expires on June the 30th, whether he'll extend, whether he will stay, whether he will go, which he looks pretty certain that he will leave. He's such an important player for Bournemouth and they will certainly want to, to keep hold of him. And that's where you need Brooks and you need Dan Juma to come in and actually to take that load off him. 
Lots of links with Arsenal in the last few days and Ryan Fraser, as you mentioned, free agent in the summer, makes him very attractive option in uncertainty surrounding the transfer market due to the coronavirus. Uh, if Arsenal are his final destination, what sort of a player would they be getting if they can get Fraser back in top form? He is a fantastic player and I don't think, you know, speaking to, to those who know him, those who've worked with him, there, there's no doubt that he has the ability to play for a top six side. I guess they're the flip side is where they, you know, he'd, he'd be suited to, to play at that level. And playing at Bournemouth is very different to playing in front of 60,000 people at the Emirates or, or at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. He's obviously in a really good position now as, as a free agent, especially with clubs struggling for cash flow. Whether Arsenal are interested, our understanding is that Arsenal aren't actually, don't see him as a priority and, and Tottenham have very much got their cards close to their chest. So whether he will that end up at a mid-table club or not, the thing with 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 Fraser, he's, he's so well suited to Bournemouth and the manager, the way they play, the lifestyle. That seems like the best place to, to get the most out of him. In terms of the player that you know these sides will get, he's a quick player, he's fast, he's creative, he's a nuisance and he works very, very hard. And I think that's what's been missed quite a lot this year, especially in those first four months of the season, You know, is that his work rate going backwards as well as forwards. And for Eddie Howe, in any of his wingers, he wants that work rate going the other way. It's so important to the way the team functions. And that's one of his key assets and it's very much an endearing factor for a player like Fraser and when he matches that up with his quality in the final third it makes him a very very good player Harry Wilson's first full season in the Premier League as a starter he's on loan from Liverpool 15 goals for Derby last season and my memory of a lot of that season kind of tallies with what Michael was talking about just now excellent from set piece situations sometimes a little wasteful uh, in open play drifted in and out of games could be devastating uh, but equally could be fairly anonymous and sometimes just made frustrating decisions often opting to shoot from range instead of um, getting his head up and making a pass uh, how, what have you seen from Wilson uh, again first season at this level seven goals he scored that amazing free kick technique uh, where do you see him next season for example I think I can see him. He's certainly a Premier League player. I think that the key thing for him is that, as you say, it was his first season in the Premier League and he's come in and, and scored important goals. His free kicks are, are one side of it. He's got fantastic technique, as Michael was saying. He can he can curl the ball, he can knuckleball it, depending on where he is, where the set-piece situation is. And, and that's a massive asset. Um, and he's really honed that skill the whole way through from... When he was in Liverpool's academy, you know, he's in the same youth team for a time as, as Trent Alexander-Arnold. But then when he, even when he went on his first loan to Crewe, where he struggled and had a really torrid time in, a, in the lower leagues, he, he was always out practicing his technique, different techniques, always scoring wonderful goals. And that's really helped him, I think, to, to, get, to get a foothold at the higher level. But the, the other side to, to his game is, is how he can drift out of, of matches in open play. He, he is effective. Uh, when he drifts in field, he, he seems to be a kind of player who likes to operate in central areas rather than being an out-and-out winger who can try and beat a fullback with a little bit of trickery, with a little bit of pace. So in, in that sense, we're, there's sort of a, not the jury is divided because he's quite clearly got the quality. And, and for Bournemouth, his goals have been so important, especially in the, during the first half of the season where Bournemouth weren't scoring as many goals as, as they probably would have liked. And Wilson was just chipping in constantly with the odd goal every now and again. He seems to be one of those players who pops up in the right place at the right time and even if he is quiet, you know there's a chance of of him scoring when he's on the field. So that's a major asset 
Um, and it, it's already laid the foundations, I think, for a career in the Premier League. But whether he can make that step to, to the Liverpool level, I, don't, I think we'd have to see more of him to reach that point. Well, another Welsh winger who is owned by Bournemouth is David Brooks, 22-year-old, really exciting player who's missed the whole season uh, through injury. Please tell me, Peter, that when football returns, we'll be seeing Brooks playing for this Bournemouth side because I think both for fans and neutrals alike, this is someone to get really excited about. Yes, yes, he's there. He's in training. He's been pictured. He's definitely, definitely in training, which... You know, for Bournemouth fans, that's a massive, massive boost. Everyone's been craving for him to return, really. He has been such a miss because he's so well-suited to the way the team plays. An exciting player, a really good player on the break, on the counter-attack, the way he drifts in field. He can play in that central area, he can play out wide. And, you know, that's that's a major, major boost, not just for his quality, but just, just for morale as well, coming into these final few games of the season because you know his teammates value his his quality. So... Having him back will be a major boost. And as long as he's wrapped up in cotton wool before the restart, then he should be involved. Uh, another player we haven't really mentioned in the in the wide areas discussion, because we're maybe not entirely sure whether he's a wide man or a front man, is Joshua King, uh, formerly of Manchester United, of course. And I, I noticed in the last few weeks, gets occasionally linked to a move back to Old Trafford. I believe he's... Uh, signed up to the same agent as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, which often leads to these sorts of links. Uh, now, what about his best position, Peter? Uh, where does he thrive for this Bournemouth side? Is he a wide man? Is he best playing alongside Callum Wilson in a front two? What do you think? Well, Joshua King will tell you that he wants to play up front and that's his best position. But I would say for me, and we, we've looked at this and, and his best performances, especially this season, you know, he's very effective on the left wing and it, it does suit his best qualities. He's a fantastic dribbler. He's very good 1v1. He's very strong as well, which really does help against, you know, more attack-minded fullbacks who like to play on the front foot in the opposition half. And if you've got a player like King up against you, that that really is a challenge. And we, when you look at the statistics for him this season, playing on the left compared to playing in central areas, he's actually creating more chances. He's scoring more goals and he's making more assists per 90 minutes from the left wing. Um, the problem, of course, with Playing on the left at Bournemouth has always been Ryan Fraser, but because Fraser's form hasn't been at that same level, he's been pushed into those areas. And, you know, some of the, the team's best performances have been with King on the left. You know, there was, he scored against Chelsea recently and the game against Burnley, which was uh, which ended up with a 3-0 defeat. But Bournemouth actually played very, very well. And King was absolutely outstanding on the left-hand side. And the big talking point for him, I guess, is, is you know, he will want to showcase his talent in a, in a front area. He's spoken openly about wanting to play in the Champions League. And so those links about bigger club aren't too much of a surprise. And, and based on his performances, they're not a surprise either. But I think for him, he's never really showed his goal-scoring potential in an attacking area. We've never really seen if he's actually an out-and-out goal scorer because Callum Wilson has always had that position while he's been at the club. So he's, he signed from Blackburn. He was actually spotted by Eddie Howe as a left winger, interestingly enough. And He's always played that sort of secondary striker role and, and how wants that second striker to very much drop deeper, to link the play, to bring the wingers into play. And that ne doesn't necessarily mean he's always on the shoulder. I mean, he has got his goals. There was one season where Callum Wilson was out. I believe it was 2016 to 17. King scored 16 goals. And, you know, there was quite clearly he's got that potential to to play in that in that position. So the question is, we need to see it. Um, and he hasn't really had that chance yet. Michael, what about 
Callum Wilson because he is Bournemouth's top scorer this season with eight goals. Uh, last season, it was 14 in the league and plenty of assists too. Uh, he got his England debut and since has made four caps, scoring one goal. It's the same record as potentially the rival for the backup to Harry Kane slot in Tammy Abraham, who, of course, is, is six years younger. Do you think Wilson would have made it to the Euros uh, this season, this summer had they gone ahead despite a, a drop-off in goals? I mean, I think he might have just because England seems to be really struggling with uh, with injuries to their centre-forwards. Yeah, I mean, I like Wilson. I think he's a good all-round forward. I think he's he can pretty much do everything pretty well. His link plays good. He can come short. He can spin in behind. He can create chances for himself if needed. Like I say, I think the absence of Fraser has has harmed him and I do think he's a striker that seems to like playing alongside someone um as he as he mentioned with with King sometimes he's done very well I remember as well there was a goal um quite recently well I say recently obviously it's been two months since any football so not that recent but a goal they scored uh, a goal Wilson scored against Brighton in the 3-1 home win where he played a really good one too with uh, Dominic Solanke it was a kind of classic strike partnership goal and I think that kind of showed what what Wilson's all about really um Obviously, Solanke hasn't been particularly prolific himself, but I do think when he's paid up there, he has offered good support for Wilson. Peter, Michael's been kind there to, to Solanke, not particularly prolific. He's a really interesting uh, person, a player to talk about here because, uh, of course, uh, a pretty lively career as a young player, moving, well, winning everything with Chelsea's youth team, moving to Liverpool and since to Bournemouth. I mean... There's different ways of looking at the, at the stats, I suppose. He's, he's yet to score a Premier League goal for Bournemouth in, I think, 34 appearances. But if you look at the minutes, it's about 1,500 minutes. You, you'd certainly want more than zero goals there. But a lot of his opportunities have been from the bench. Uh, what have you made of, of Solanke's form from someone who's who's watched more of him than most? Are people missing something by focusing on the lack of goal return? Or is that a real sticking point at the moment? Dominic Solanke. Well, um, yeah, you're right, to be honest. I think people do miss the other side to his game. And I, it's very difficult to assess Solanke without looking at his goals. And, you know, he's, he's, it took him exactly a year since signing from Liverpool to score his first competitive goal, which was against Luton in the FA Cup. And it was a very cruel game because he actually scored in the first half, but it was ruled out from VAR. And obviously the supporters were absolutely thrilled that he'd scored. And it, it just led to, you know, mass despair when it was ruled out. But he did get his goal. And that's the you know, the yardstick for a striker. And Solanke knows that. And I think most associated with the club will, will probably agree with that. And, you know, it was a big outlay, £17 million on a striker. That, that's a lot of money. But when you actually watch him play, as we were saying with King, and as I was saying before about, you know, the, the support striker up front that Howe likes to play, I'm thinking of Jan Kermigan, I'm thinking of Steve Fletcher, their primary role in the team is not necessarily to score goals. Now, take your Kings and your Kermigans and they would score and it's important that he does contrib- contribute. But Solanke's role in the team has always been as a as the second striker when he does play with King moving to the left. And that, you know, has seen him become more involved in the build-up play, taking the ball down. Bournemouth are actually quite a direct team. They, everyone, you know, they do like to play out from the back, but because of their counter-attacking preference, they do want to move the ball very quickly into the final third. And having Solanke's physical presence is actually really important. And technically, he's an outstanding player. You know, he's very good at keeping the ball. He's able to distribute it well. He's not quite creative enough to really have an impact in that sense. And he hasn't popped up in positions where he's going to score goals. And that's been probably the key criticism, that he's not in those areas. He doesn't ha- hasn't shown that instinct that he probably needs to. 
But in terms of his all-round play and build-up play, he's actually been quite good. And the disappointing thing for him was that it was the Brighton game where Bournemouth had to win. They really had to beat Brighton in, in January after a terrible run of form. And it was his best performance for Bournemouth by a mile. He was outstanding. He was creative. He was a threat. He was strong. But he was then he was then dropped the following week, mainly because Howe wanted to switch to the four three three, and that's that's worked superbly well. Um, but it was a performance that showed he does have the quality to do that. And there hasn't been a criticism from from Howe about him at all. You know, he's always been praised. He's always praised him as he, as he would as his player. But there is a, there is a sense, you know, that he does fulfil the role in the team that he wants him to do. And obviously, that the lack of goals is what everyone talks about. But that's definitely not quite the full picture with him. Still only 22, of course. Uh, Michael, let's finish by talking more widely about Eddie Howe. Uh, he has been at the club, as discussed, and been intrinsically linked with it and its rise for, well, a, a long, long time now uh, as a player and as a fantastic manager. And he is always an interesting point of discussion when thinking about managers in the Premier League who might be tempting other clubs, clubs in the top six even. Uh, what do you make of, of discussion around Eddie Howe and whether he could do a job at a, a, a larger club or one higher, finishing higher in the Premier League? And what do you think the future might look like for Eddie Howe? Yeah, I think he's a really talented coach and, and certainly someone where, you know, he was a little bit more to a football club than just being a coach. I think that's very obvious at Bournemouth. As Peter says, there's probably no other club in the Premier League where there's such a strong link between the manager and the club and the supporters. And I think that's really attractive for a lot of clubs who who sometimes have, you know, revolving door policy of managers. Look at someone like West Ham, for example, who seem to change their manager every couple of seasons. I think that, you know, the situation's probably changed for how compared to a year ago. I mean, this time last year, there was um, lots of speculation that Pochettino might leave Spurs after the Champions League final. Obviously, he took another few months to do that. And there was strong word that if he were to leave, then Tottenham might turn to to Eddie Howe. Now, obviously, Spurs' situation has changed. They've gone down a very different route with Jose Mourinho. But I, I do wonder whether after Bournemouth's difficult campaign, whether the same type of clubs really would be in for Howe. And I do wonder a little bit about his, his future at, at Bournemouth. Um, you know, they're in, they're in a... As you said at the start, Ali, it's almost like 50-50 whether they'll stay up or not. Usually you'd expect almost like if, if they get relegated, then Howe hasn't done his job and maybe it would be time for him to move on. If they stay up, then, you know, maybe he'll stick around. But actually, I think the situation might be the complete opposite. If Bournemouth were to go down, I do think Eddie Howe would be a really good manager to keep, you know, the, the players that need to stay at the club and maybe to build again and, and get promotion for a second time because he has a track record of doing that. But I think if they stay in the Premier League, it feels to me like there needs to be some kind of overhaul, whether that's in the playing staff or with the manager. It feels like Bournemouth need to kind of draw a line, a line in the sand and move on a little bit because it feels like a slightly tired squad, a squad that is, is trying to do the same things they've done for a couple of years without necessarily some of the key ingredients because we know Fraser won't be there next year. So, yeah, I think the situation's changed a little bit from uh, from a year ago. I'm not quite sure the opportunities will be available that Howe would have counted upon 12 months ago. I'd say with, with Howe, I think the one question that we keep asking and, and does get asked is, is there a glass ceiling with Bournemouth? Is there a point in which you go, I can't take this team any further? And, and this season has been, you know, a step back in that sense. There'd always been that sense of Bournemouth were progressing and, you know, they're looking at top half, they're, you know, looking at maybe sneaking a European place. 
But this year, obviously, I mean, it's hard to, to talk about the season without mentioning injuries and just how devastating they've been across the team. I, th- I don't think there's a, an outfield player who's made one appearance who hasn't been injured from actually not just outfield, including Aaron Ramsdale. So that sort of gives a sense of just how great an extent injuries have played a role. But what has been interesting with how at Bournemouth over the five years they've been in the Premier League is they have remodelled the squad. It has become a lot younger year on year. And, and this year is the youngest squad they've had. And the signings last year, last summer, uh, included Philip Billing, Lloyd Kelly, Jack Stacey. Uh, Lloyd Kelly's a centre-back. We haven't seen anything of him because he's been injured all season. Jack Stacey we've seen bits of and he's been actually superb when he's come in and he's stepped up from League One with Luton last season. So what he's done is he's sort of remoulded the team to, to make that next step, to try and press on. And, and this year has just been a massive step back. And now you're looking at squad wear, as Michael's saying, You've got players like Callum Wilson and Joshua King and Ryan Fraser who want to be making that next step in their careers. They want to be trying to get into... They want to be playing in Europe. You know, It's not a secret that these players want to do that because they want to be playing at the highest level and they believe they can do that and they have the quality to. So it does feel like a, a juncture, really, and relegation will be you know, quite a, a decisive factor in that. But for Howe himself, it's, it's a question of can he progress? And whenever you speak to anyone who's worked with him, they speak about him in glowing terms, specifically his coaching. You know, he's a coach through and through. He doesn't like doing anything else, really. He wants to be on the training ground. And, you know, players who've left, you say they don't know how lucky they are, the players in the current squad, to have a coach like Howe, who is as attentive as he is to each player. So in that sense, if he were to leave as well, he'd want a role where he could fulfil that. And there are so many other challenges with the big six side. And But he is only 42, which is young in managerial terms. And there's... Um, plenty of time for, for him to grow and, and to potentially make that next step. It's absolutely fascinating situation for how and for the club to be in on a sort of mid to long term basis with the evolution of the playing squad and uh, and as you mentioned, the, the various ambitions that players and staff have. But in the short term, they've got a job to do. They have to get out of the relegation zone, more or less a coin toss, according to the data analysts uh, at this juncture. It remains to be seen how things will go with various players back from injuries. I certainly feel a lot more clued up on this Bournemouth side and the way that they play, maybe banishing a few myths that have been held over from previous seasons. This Bournemouth side, not actually particularly open, not always particularly free-flowing, um, but a really interesting club to discuss on this week's Zonal Marking podcast. So huge thank you to Peter and to Michael as well for providing the goodness. If you want to read what these guys are writing at the moment, The Athletic, of course, is the place to be. You can head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash Zonal Marking to get a 30-day free trial. So much good stuff on site at the moment. Please do give it a go. And of course, there's a a whole host of athletic podcasts as well, not just this one. So uh, have a look on the site and find the one that you think interests you the most. Give another athletic podcast a go today. They are available uh, on all podcast platforms for free and ad-free on the athletic site. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we will be welcoming the return of La Liga. We will find the most zonal marking topic that we can from Spanish football and bring you that so please do join us then thank you for listening today and we'll talk again next week